This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his uh, guidance and direction on our study of the word. Father, you've revealed yourself to us in a period of over 2,000 years through various means and methods, from dreams and visions to theophanies, and you have overseen and superintended, guided the process of taking that which you have revealed and putting it into words and writing it down and then preserving it down through the centuries. Father, we're thankful that we have your word and that we have evidence, overwhelming evidence, that this is not just the opinions of human beings, but this is indeed a special revelation from the creator of the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. And as such, we can count upon your word to be more trustworthy, more reliable, more certain than anything that we experience, anything that we feel, anything that we see in life, because your word is your word. Now, Father, as we study your word today and take this time to reflect upon the things that are revealed there, the priorities, the attitudes, the uh, principles by which we are to live, we pray that we might uh, humble ourselves under the teaching of your word, that we might be willing to submit to the guidance and direction of God the Holy Spirit, and as the Holy Spirit makes these things clear to us, that we might see how to make them real in our own lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Turn your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Now, it's true in most of our lives that as you were growing up, I certainly know it was true for me. I know that there are some exceptions to this, but... But when I would perform well, my parents were proud of me. They were glad that uh, I was a, a good repre- representative of the family. On the other hand, if I didn't do well, I would usually uh, get some sort of uh, discussion or rebuke or correction uh, from my parents because I wasn't behaving or acting in a way that brought honor upon the family. And uh, th- this, uh, these ideas have somewhat been lost today from what I have witnessed both as a teacher, school teacher many, many years ago and what I hear from, from many teachers and parents today. But the reality is, is that when you go forth or your children go forth and how they behave, how they conduct themselves, says an awful lot about the family and it says a lot about parents and even today, if you're an adult, how you live your life 
reflects upon your parents and upon your family. Now, sometimes we don't like that. We think, well, I'm an adult. I can live my life my own way. Sure you can. But it still reflects something about your uh, the way in which you were reared. It says something about your family background. It says something about uh, your parents. If we have been trained well by our parents, then that shows. If we haven't, then that also shows. And if we're just uh, rebellious, then that also says something not only about us, but it says something about uh, parenting. The point is that how we live doesn't just reflect upon who we are. It reflects upon the family out of which we come, the family to which we belong. The same thing is true in the spiritual life because at the time that we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the time when you trust in him, a number of different things happened. They weren't things you experienced, but nevertheless they were real. You were... You receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness, which is the basis for your salvation. And so God the Father could declare you to be just, not because of what you've done, but because of who Christ is and what he has done and because of his righteousness. We're regenerated. We become a new creature in Christ. We are given a new life uh, so that we are now spiritual infants. And Uh, We're also adopted into God's royal family, so we have a new identity along with that new position, and we're part of a new family. And in God's family, there's a code of conduct. There are protocols. There are ways in which we should live as believers that reflect upon that new family. Now, understanding that is really important to understand many things that are said in Scripture, some of the difficult passages that some people will go to to try to uh, prove that you can lose your salvation uh, are, are not really that at all. They're passages that are basically saying, if you are a member of God's family, this is how you're going to live. That doesn't mean that if you live differently, if you violate that code of conduct or those standards of behavior, that you're not a member of God's family. It's just that you are a rebellious, poor example of God's family, just like if we're disobedient and we don't go along with what our parents have said and we bring shame and dishonor upon our human family, doesn't mean they're still not our parents. We can never change that. That's a reality. You may hate them. They may hate you. You may get disowned, but nevertheless, they're still your parents. Nobody can take away your parents or take away your birthday. Those are set forever. And so you're still a member of that family. The same thing is true uh, in the Scripture, that, that we are part members of God's family. Sometimes we act like we're stepchildren. Sometimes we act like we are been kicked out of the family and we've been disinherited. But nevertheless, we're still members of God's family. We can never, never have that salvation, that adoption into God's family taken away because God... Uh, does not do that. He does not go back on his word. All of those things, I mean, just taking the time to think about all the various things that God does for every person at the minute of salvation, you, you just can't imagine what could reverse all of that. It's not just a matter of getting eternal life and having it taken away from you. Think about justification, reconciliation, uh, redemption, adoption, uh, reception of all the ministries of God, the Holy Spirit, all of the changes that take place in just an instant of time when we trust in Christ as Savior, that those are all irreversible. And he has given us so much that with that comes a certain obligation to live as a member of his family. 
That doesn't mean that if we don't live that way that we lose our salvation. It does mean if we don't live that way that we do come under divine discipline because as Hebrews 12 uh, states that whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, he chastens. And so as a member of God's family, you're not going to be kicked out of the family, but you are going to come under uh, various forms of divine discipline. Now, as a member of God's family, we have to think, what is it that God expects us to do? How do we learn this code of conduct, this uh, code of behavior, this way of thinking that is to characterize, uh, that is to characterize our new position and our new uh, family responsibilities? And that comes from a study of God's Word primarily, but as we look at different passages and as we study, as we are studying in the, this opening section of Colossians, in Colossians chapter 1, one of the things that we see is how the Apostle Paul prays for these believers in this church in Colossae. He's never been there. He's only heard about them through the man who pastored them many years, a man by the name of Epaphras. And Epaphras has brought him a message in Rome that where he, where he, that is Epaphras, has told Paul about all the many different things that characterize these new believers in Colossae and how they have grown. We've studied this in the first, uh, in verses three through eight, have they, how their, uh, faith in Christ, not just their justification faith, but their faith in terms of spiritual growth. Uh, is becoming known far beyond their their geographical vicinity, that they have a love for all the saints, and that this is motivated by their hope, their hope, their focus, their confident expectation of future rewards and their future destiny uh, in heaven. And so as Paul has received that message, he, we then come to verse 9 where he says, uh, for this reason, and that refers back in a general sense to what he has uh, received in this report from Epaphras, the most immediate um, uh, reference would go back to verse eight, who says that where he says that Epaphras declared to us your love, uh, your love by means of God the Holy Spirit, which indicates spiritual fruitfulness. The fruit of the Spirit is first of all love, in Galatians five twenty two, and so they're growing. But that that statement there at the end that Epaphras declared to us uh, your love by means of the Spirit is really just a Summary of what he had expressed uh, earlier in their par- in, in the paragraph uh, that he had heard of their faith in Christ Jesus and their love for all the saints, and <clears throat> that this was motivated by their hope. So, for this reason, because of all that he has heard, he's going to give them uh, additional uh, additional information. And also remember that in each of these epistles. Paul's addressing usually more than one problem, more than one situation in a local congregation. I want you to think about that because what usually motivates us to go anywhere in the spiritual life, what motivates us to even get saved, is that we've got some sort of problem in life, whether we're just feeling that there's no meaning or purpose in life and we're looking for meaning and purpose, trying to discover if there is a God, if there's uh, some... some uh, a spiritual reality that's more than just what I see, or whether we're experiencing uh, specific difficulties and adversities in life. And so this brings us to the point where we realize that we're not sufficient to handle life on our own. We need someone else. We need, we need God, whatever it may be. There's always this sort of a problem. Now, in Colossae, the problem is that they're getting sucked into some false teaching. 
But it's not just sort of this academic thing of you, do you believe in this philosophy or that philosophy or you believe in this religion or that religion. The reason they're motivated and moved to believe, or all of us are motivated or moved to believe in one thing or another is because somehow we think it works for us. It's going to solve these problems in life. So it's not just a matter that they're getting attracted to some sort of esoteric, mystical, uh, legalistic type of religious system, which is what was going on, but that fundamentally they were being attracted to it because they thought that it offered them something that somehow they weren't getting from Christianity. And what that indicates is that they had a, an anemic view of Christ and an anemic view of what God provided for them and an, an anemic view of the Christian life. And so in this opening section of the epistle, as the Apostle Paul goes through these prayers, what we see here is his focus on what really ultimately matters in any of our lives in terms of our spiritual growth. We look at what Paul is thankful for and what he is praying for in relation to uh, these believers in Colossae tell us where the real priority should be in our own thinking and in our own spirit. Uh, spiritual life. So let me just read through this next paragraph, and then we'll come back and look at some of the specifics. It says, for this reason, that is, in light of the message I've heard about your spiritual growth already, we also, the we referring to Timothy who's with him, uh, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of, his, of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness, the forgiveness of sins. Okay, let's look at this opening section. He says, for this reason, for this reason, because they've, they've already grown. So Paul's very positive. He's very thankful, as he's expressed already for the spiritual growth that they've attained already, but that's just that's just the beginning. They, they haven't arrived. We never really arrive in this life in terms of our spiritual growth, spiritual uh, development. And he says, for this reason, uh, we also, and then we get into the main statement here, always related, looking for the main verb to see what is the main thing that he's talking about. This is a long, somewhat long sentence. It's a... Uh, three or actually a four verse sentence so it's easy to get lost in some of the details and if we look at the main verb or the main clause uh, grammatically I know some of you as soon as you start talking about grammar you're like me when I start talking about math it just sort of goes vacant I heard somebody talking on the news this morning they were interviewing some teacher and she said that her job was to uh, make math fun First thing that came out of my mouth was liar, liar, pants on fire. <laughs> you know, you can't make math fun. You can make grammar fun, but you can't make math fun. 
But gra- grammar gives structure to the, to the thought, so by understanding the grammatical structure here, we see what the main idea is. And the main idea is that Paul is saying, we do not stop, we do not cease to pray for you and to ask. So the main thing in this set of verses is his prayer. And, and whenever we're looking at the prayers of any of the saints in Scripture, whether it's uh, David in the Old Testament or Paul in the New Testament, first thing we should understand here in terms of application is what are the what is being prayed for, because this gives us because it's in Scripture it gives us God's uh, view of what's important, where the priority should be in terms of what we. Uh, go to God for in terms of prayer. So he's talking about, first of all, we do not cease praying for you. Now, the verb that we find there for for cessation is the word pao, Greek verb. For those of you who are a little more knowledgeable on some things, this is the same verb, a very similar uh, verb form to what we have in 1 Corinthians 13.8, the tongues will cease. And it's a middle voice which indicates uh, more of a dynamic sense that this is something that is certain uh, that's going on. And so Paul uses this in a middle voice to express uh, or to emphasize this verb a little bit that, that they don't st- he doesn't stop praying. And the principle here that we see in terms of prayer is that we are not to consider prayer just something tacked on to the Christian life that we're to make prayer a priority. It should be structured. It should be habitual. It should be not just one time a day. You may have one time a day where you have a more disciplined prayer time, but prayer should be something that goes on and on throughout the day. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, uh, verse 17, the Apostle Paul says that we're to pray without ceasing. And the Greek verb there emphasizes that this is something that doesn't mean that that's all you do, but it is something that characterizes your life on again, off again, all throughout the day. As things come up, you can just shoot little bullet prayers to God, and at other times you may take a little more time in prayer, but it's it's not just a life of bullet prayers. There also should be times of, of uh, significant, disciplined, focused, uh, focused prayer. And it is something that is not optional, but is central to our our spiritual life. So Paul says that uh, they do not cease to pray and to ask. Now, there's some things we need to address here in terms of the Greek. In English, that's uh, translated as if it's two infinitives, to pray and to ask. And that's not how it's structured in the Greek. In the Greek, there are two participles there. And the participle is an ing word, praying, and I'm going to translate this not asking, but since it's in the context of prayer, I'm going to, going to translate it interceding on their behalf. But that ing ending emphasizes that this is an ongoing action. That's exactly what he's saying. In context, we don't cease praying and asking or interceding on your behalf. And so the first word for prayer there, prosyukamai, is a normal word for prayer, and it has to do with addressing a request to a deity. And the second word that's uh, translated ask, ask is the primary meaning of this word aiteo, but like I said, 
words need to be translated in terms of their usage within the context. And when you're asking God on behalf of somebody else, a more precise term is intercession or interceding for somebody. And so this should be uh, translated as uh, we do not cease praying and interceding uh, for you or on your behalf. Uh, in your stead, it's the same phrase. That for you is the same phrase in the Greek that we see uh, Christ, in the phrase Christ died for you. Christ died as a substitute for you, and that's the idea of intercession. We are going to God on behalf of somebody else in their place and asking for certain things, and that's part of our, our prayer life. So we are to pray for others. And as Paul says, he doesn't cease praying and interceding for you. But what's he praying for? That they can have, uh, is it just a general God bless you? I remember as as a young child, like many of you, being taught, uh, now I lay me down to sleep. And then you'd finish and you'd say, God bless my mother and father and aunt and uncle and friends and neighbors and dogs. And you run through a generalized list like that. But we don't see those kinds of generalized uh, God bless so-and-so type prayers In the scripture, there are specifics that are stated here which help us to understand how we should be praying for others. And so Paul says that we are praying and interceding on behalf of you uh, for a particular purpose, and that comes up in uh, the purpose clause at the end of the verse, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Now, that is a loaded clause. It gives us the purpose, the focus of, of, of the prayer request, he, that you may be filled. Now, this is an important word. It's the Greek word plerao, which is sometimes used in the sense of fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. We've studied it in some detail when studying about the, the filling of the Spirit. And it's the w- same verb that is used in Ephesians 5.18, where we have the command to be filled uh, by means of the Spirit and rather than being drunk with wine, the first part of the verse. Our command is to be filled with the Spirit. It is has to do with filling us with something. The something isn't the Holy Spirit. It's not a... And Greek grammar is very precise in certain areas. And if you're talking about filling something up with something, for example, I have my coffee mug here, uh, and it is filled with coffee. Uh, I would probably never use an instrumental clause or a Greek preposition in to describe the contents of that mug. I would use a genitive construction to describe the contents. Well, we don't have that in Ephesians 5.18. We have this instrumental clause, so it's not the Holy Spirit we're being filled up with. But it is the Holy Spirit who is filling us up with something else. So what is the content of that filling? Well, the content of the filling is what we see here in uh, Colossians 1.9. That phrase, the next phrase is that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. Now, just another grammatical point. The way we translate these things in terms of English gets loses some of the significance of the original Greek because when you translate it, be filled with the knowledge of something, that can indicate that that's the content. It could also, with, can also, in English, can also indicate means. 
And it's neither a genitive here nor is it a an instrumental dative. It's an accusative. And it should be understood as an accusative of, of reference, which means that it's limiting the focus of the verb with reference to something specific. So that he, what Paul is saying here is so that you may be filled with reference to the knowledge of God's will. And so what in, when in the ministry of God's I got the Holy Spirit in our filling ministry. I've often pointed out the similarities between the results of Ephesians 5.18, uh, giving thanks to God for all things, uh, singing homes, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and making melody in your heart to the Lord and uh, several other consequences. And then if we go to Colossians 3.16, we have another list of almost an identical list in Colossians 3.16 and 17 of the consequences of a different command. The command in Colossians 3.16 is to let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. That's the same kind of thing that that, um, that Paul is saying here is that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. The, the content that we're filled with, what's supposed to dwell in our minds, as he puts it in Colossians 3.16, is the word of God. It is the content of God's word, what he has revealed to us, that our soul is to be filled with so that as we learn more and more of God's word, it's not just an academic knowledge, but it is knowledge that under the filling ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, and under uh, his ministry, he's teaching us, uh, revealing the word to us, that it becomes more and more clear to us how to apply these things. And the more that we learn, the more we learn to think how God thinks, and then things begin to come together and we see how to apply his word in many different areas of life. So it all starts with knowledge. Uh, the knowledge that's uh, mentioned here is the verb epinosis. Gnosis is your root noun for knowledge. When you add that prefix, epi, it intensifies it, and in many cases, that word epinosis has to do with a full or experiential knowledge of something. It's gone from just being uh, academic knowledge to something where you're learning and the, the practical, applicational value of something. It's one thing to learn how to uh, uh, add and subtract through a column of numbers. It's another thing to do it when you're uh, filling out your uh, IRS return and uh, the stakes are a little higher than just getting an A or a B, and it has to do with your, your pocketbook. But if you learn in second grade, third grade, how to add up a column of numbers and how to subtract and do all your basic mathematic functions, then uh, later on in life when you have to do these other things like balance your checkbook or fill out your income tax return or things like that, all of a sudden that academic knowledge that you had in a math class now becomes practical knowledge. It now has moved from the realm of gnosis to epinosis. And so there is value to it. And then if you learn how to do other things uh, with, with numbers and mathematically, then that allows you to uh, use that in many other areas, and that develops skill with math. I never got there, but... Uh, that develops skill with math. And the concept of skill with something is what the Old Testament writers refer to as chokmah, or it's translated in the Old Testament as wisdom. So wisdom, in, when we get into the New Testament, even though it's written in Greek, 
the wisdom that is usually referred to as part of the spiritual life isn't the sort of abstract wisdom that uh, one would get in Greek culture from studying the philosophers and understanding Greek thought, uh, but it's still that Old Testament concept of skill. These writers are all Jewish writers. Their frame of reference is all the Old Testament. So when they talk about wisdom as a positive uh, spiritual virtue in the New Testament, it's they're, they're talking about that same idea of a practical application and skillful application of God's Word as you had in the Old Testament, for example, and especially in Proverbs and uh, Ecclesiastes and some of the other wisdom literature and some of the wisdom, wisdom psalms. So what Paul says here is that I pray constantly for you, and what I'm praying for is that you are filled first with epinosis, with this full knowledge that you get from God's Word. The difference between epinosis and gnosis is, is there are many people that you know who are Christians who have an academic knowledge of God's Word, but they don't really believe it. They can tell you many things about what the Bible says. They've studied the Bible as human literature. They haven't studied it as the Word of God that is supposed to change their life. In Europe, one of the great academic professions that's highly respected, not respected here, but over in Europe, if you dedicate your life to being an academic, to being a professor, and especially a professor of theology or philosophy, that's a highly respected profession doesn't mean they have a clue about salvation or anything else. Uh, one uh, resource you've heard me mention before, you've heard others perhaps mention, is a 10-volume work that was originally uh, put together by um, a man named Kittle, uh, Wilhelm Kittle in, um, uh, in, in uh, Germany. Very anti-Semitic. The English translation took all the anti-Semitic stuff out. Uh, but this is a 10-volume work, and many of the writers who write about these Greek words and their use in the Scripture uh, probably don't have a clue about salvation, but they've dedicated their life to the study of the Bible and the use of Greek in, uh, in New Testament literature. And they have a measure of insight uh, just based on basic grammar and basic word usage, but they really don't know in an epinosis manner the word because they're not saved. So that's the difference, is gnosis emphasizes, there's a distinction, gnosis emphasizes more of just an academic understanding, whereas epinosis emphasizes the knowledge that comes because you believe it to be true and that you have made it a part uh, of your thinking as a result of the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So Paul is praying that this is what would be true, that it wouldn't just be academic knowledge, but it would be uh, full spiritual knowledge of God's will. Ultimately, what God's Word expresses to us is His will. And we're not talking about His will in terms of making decisions like, should I marry this person or that person, go to this college or that college, uh, university, take, pursue this uh, vocation or that vocation, live in Austin, live in Houston, live in Miami. Those aren't the kinds of decisions that the, uh, are, that the Word of God is addressing when we hear this phrase, will of God. That's usually what younger people will ask when they're in the middle of making all of those life decisions. How do I know God's will for this? That's not what Paul's not addressing it from that viewpoint. He's talking about we have the mind of Christ, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.16. And so we understand God's thinking through studying his word, all of the 
mandates, do this, do that, think this way, think that way. That's understanding how God wants us to think and how to live. Don't do this, don't do that. Those are the things that should not characterize our life. So we're to be filled with the knowledge of his will, and that comes from studying God's word. You don't get it any other way. There are many churches today where you go to church for what they emphasize as a worship time, and they use that phrase worship to just relate to the singing part of the service, and which is an abuse of the term. Uh, worship, ultimately the highest form of worship is when you're studying God's word because that's when we learn to think like God wants us to think and to live like God like God wants us to think. We learn his will, and that's the foundation. That's what the emphasis should be. If we don't know the word, if we don't know God's word, and God, then we don't know God's will. Now, a lot of people will stop there, and they say, and I've heard people say, oh, well, if we would just apply all that we know. See, our problem is we don't know enough, and we don't apply enough. Some of you have heard people say that. So, you know, we need to quit learning all this stuff. We're just getting so filled with all this knowledge about the Bible, that, uh, but we, we don't apply anymore. And the reality is that in every endeavor of life, you know, uh, I don't know, a thousand, two thousand times more than you ever will apply. But you always apply, let's say, I don't know, I'm just guessing at the percentages, we never apply more than 2% or 3% of what we know. The way to increase your application is to know more, not to try to apply a higher percentage. If we learn, instead of knowing 5,000 things, we know 50,000 things. If we still apply the same percentage, we'll be applying a lot more if we know more. And that's just the way things are in life. So we are to be filled with the knowledge of his will, and this results, uh, his will, by means of all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Actually, the adjective for spiritual here, which is pneumaticos, that relates to the, to the spirit, uh, should apply to both of these nouns, uh, both wisdom uh, and uh, understanding. So that should be, under, be translated uh, with reference to the knowledge of his will uh, by means of all wisdom that's contained in the Scripture, spiritual wisdom and understanding that is in the Scripture. But see, it doesn't stop there. Paul isn't just saying, I want you to be filled with the knowledge of his word by means of all spiritual wisdom and understanding. There's not a period there. There's a purpose. That's a means to an end. And the end comes up in the next verse. That you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So the goal of the knowledge... The goal of learning God's word isn't just to know it. It isn't just to necessarily be cognizant of all the Bible stories and all the things that go on in the scripture, but it is focusing us on a direction uh, in terms of our practical uh, life, that we are to uh, live in a way that brings uh, honor rather than shame uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are members of that family. So we are to walk worthy of the Lord. Now, when we look at this passage that we are uh, filled with reference to knowledge of his will by means of all spiritual 
wisdom and understanding, the focus is to walk worthy of the Lord. Then that's modified by saying fully pleasing him. This isn't to gain grace. It isn't to gain blessing. But it's because we have already received blessing. We've already been adopted into his family. We've already received grace so that uh, we now are to walk worthy. We are. It's an expression of gratitude. It's part of grace orientation, expression of gratitude to God for all that he does. And now that we're in his family, we want to walk in a manner that brings honor rather than shame upon the royal family of God. So we are to walk worthy. So this brings me to uh, a summary of the doctrine of walking. What does it mean to walk? Uh, this is a terminology, it's a picture for us of the Christian life. First thing I want to say is walking isn't simple. Yesterday when we were playing volleyball, I uh, tore a muscle in my calf. So walking has been um, something I've had to think about a lot the last 24 hours or so because each step has to be taken very carefully and if I don't then I can just aggravate this thing and make it make it a whole lot worse so I have to walk a lot slower I have to think about how my leg turns how the muscles turn all of those things and it makes you a little more conscientious of the fact that we just don't take walking for granted and when you were about a year old to a year and a half and you were first learning to walk uh you had to think about a lot of different things, and you had to focus. And you don't remember that, and I don't remember it either. But when you get it, get walking broken down into its basic steps, we realize that it's not something that is easy to do. And if you are come with some injury later on in life, especially if it's a traumatic injury where you lose the ability to walk, and then you have to learn how to do it again, then you realize how complex it is and how much concentration is called for to make each particular step. Uh, some of you don't know this, but when right before I was born, they had in Houston, Harris County, had the greatest outbreak of uh, polio epidemic uh, in, the, in the United States. And my mother caught polio about a week and a half before I was born. And uh, so she was uh, always in a wheelchair, as far as my memory goes. I never saw her never saw her walk. In fact, recently, uh, when my uncle died, my cousins had put together a lot of different, uh, uh, he was a big camera nut, and he had probably bought one of the first movie cameras that uh, Kodak put out in 1947. And since he was a career Air Force officer, it's a lot of pictures of airplanes, a lot of pictures of airplanes. And so you can fall asleep. And I, the first time I was looking at this, I'm watching all these airplanes and these air shows, and all of a sudden the scene shifts, and it was my grandparents' house, and my grandmother and my aunt and my mother and my mother, it was probably about six months before my parents were, were married, and they came out of the house. My mother came running out of the house, and it just shocked me. I'd never, ever seen my mother walk. And it just, I mean, I, it would just hit me emotionally in ways that I, I would never ha have, have thought of. And I remember the struggles that she went through when she was, uh, when I was little and she still hoped somehow that she would be able to walk again and she would put these metal braces on her on her legs and they'd come all the way up to her hips and she would put on these, uh, have these crutches and then she would try to walk up and down the hall 
uh, using these crutches and doing that every day and having to think about every because there's absolutely no no muscles from the waist down worked. And so she's just having to do this all by just basically swinging body weight and using her upper body strength in order to do that and thinking about hopefully somehow something will happen and generate some nerve endings or muscle endings or something like that. And I'm just thinking about that in terms of learning how, how to walk and taking those lessons and transferring them over uh, over to the Christian life and what we, we have to learn how to walk as a Christian. And it involves that same kind of thought and concentration and effort to learn it. It's not just going to happen mystically and magically. It's not just going to happen, I confess my sins and the Holy Spirit takes over, and oh, we're just going to sail right into Christian maturity. That's how some people have taught the Christian life. We studied that in the Chafer Conference we had, we had recently. Well, one of the uh, uh, men in the church who's a, uh, a veterinarian gave me a little breakdown on what was involved in learning how to walk, just take one particular step. And uh, he wrote, uh, six, he explained six basic steps. He said, first of all, the center or the posterior left thigh muscle must be tightened to initiate lifting the left foot. So we're taking our first step with our left foot. Uh, lifting the left foot while simultaneously relaxing the center anterior thigh muscle that had been sufficiently tensed to keep the knees locked while in a standing position. Simultaneously, the outside or lateral muscles of the right thigh must be tightened while the inside medial muscles are concurrently relaxed, thus shifting the center of gravity over the then weight-bearing right leg while the left side will no longer be bearing weight during the step. At the same time, you tighten the anterior calf muscles, thus lifting the toes to clear the ground. Swinging the left foot forward then requires simultaneously relaxing the tightened posterior thigh muscle while tightening the opposing front uh, anterior muscles, which pull the kneecap, which acts as a pulley, thus swinging the lower leg forward. Simultaneously, notice how many simultaneously there are in this? Simultaneously, the posterior calf muscles of the lower leg must be tightened sufficiently to assist in lifting the foot, but not sufficiently to, to, to extend the toe until the leg has swept forward, which prepares for placing the foot securely flat on the ground rather than just heel first. As the left leg is being extended, the anterior muscles of the right leg must be tightened to move the center of gravity of the body forward so that weight can be positioned over the left foot as it is placed on the ground. Now, see, what we see there is that that simple act of taking a step really involves much more than this. This is the simplified version. It involves doing 10, 12, 15 different things, all in, in some things at the same time and some things in the precise order. Same thing happens in the Christian life. When we're going to walk, which is a metaphor for how we live our life or how we conduct ourselves, it involves doing a number of things, some things simultaneously and some things in the right order. If we don't do them in the right order, then we, don't, we make a misstep, we fall down, we stumble. So there's a, there are procedures here that are part of, the, part of the Christian life that we have to follow. It's not just something that is simple. And the Bible describes all of the mechanics. And even though it's not mechanical, 
You, we have to learn all of the mechanics, just like when you learn to play piano. You have to learn how to play scales. You have to, uh, when you play uh, any other musical instrument, you play a wind instrument, you have to work on how you hold your mouth, developing your embouchure, that's your mouth muscles, and all of those things. You have to practice, 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 practice. And uh, if you practice wrongly, then you practice bad habits, and you have to unlearn those habits. Perfect practice makes perfect practice that's not perfect, you just learn bad habits. So walking is a procedure we have to practice over and over again. Now, second point is that walking is a metaphor in the scripture. It's it's using the step-by-step that we take with our physical feet as a metaphor or picture for how a person lives their life. It's a metaphor for a person's lifestyle. It includes our norms and standards, our values, our policies, our habits, our priorities, how we manage our time. In essence, it's everything that we do is included in this concept of, of walking. So it expresses a code of conduct, and God the Father has a code of conduct, a behavior standard for everybody in the member who's a member of God's royal family. And the scripture uses this metaphor numerous times to express uh, the dynamics of the Christian life and the standards for the Christian life. For example, point number three, the Christian's lifestyle is related to understanding we have this new life. We have a new life in Christ. This is the emphasis in the first uh, half a dozen verses in Romans chapter 6, that because we have been identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection... We become a new creature in Christ, and we're given a new life. And now that we have this new life, we are to live in a way that reflects the standards for that new life. Romans 6, 4 says, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should, and that expresses a mandate, we also should walk in newness of life. So we walk according to this new category of life. But we don't always do that. We often fail. We often live like we did before we were saved. And that is called living according to the sin nature, living according to the flesh. And our fourth point here is that we only have two options in the scriptures as to how we walk. We walk either according to the flesh, the sin nature, or we walk according to the spirit. For example, in Romans 8, 3 and 4, we read, For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, that is, the sin nature, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. That doesn't mean he was sinful. It just means he had the appearance of every other human being and appeared to be no different physically. Uh, In the likeness of sinful flesh, on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. It just establishes those two options. It's either one or the other. It's not both at the same time. So at any given time, we're either conducting our life according to the sin nature or we're conducting our life according to uh, the Holy Spirit. This is also seen in other passages such as Romans 13, 12 to 14 where Paul uh, uses the contrast between light and day. He says, The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness, that is, living according to the sin nature. 
and let us put on the armor of, of light. We're Christians. We're already sons of light positionally, but now we have to live, in other passages, live or walk as children of light, walk according to the light. So he says in verse 13, let us walk properly or appropriately. That means let us conduct our lives as members of God's family where it reflects our family heritage. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, nor in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, contrast, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That comes as we learn the Word of God and we learn to think as Christ thinks and according to divine revelation. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. See, the contrast is walking according to Christ or walking according to the sin nature. Galatians 5.16 and 17 has the same contrast, walking by the Spirit versus walking according to the lust of the flesh. Another principle we have is that in walking by the Spirit, we walk by faith. That is not in contrast to reason. That is faith in the Word of God. We have to understand the Word of God and trust it and believe it to be true and implement that in our life. Trouble we have is we want to say, I really know better. When we sin, and we sin willfully at that time, what's really going on in our minds is at that instant we're saying, I know better than God. It's okay for me to do this. That happens to every one of us. We don't come right out and say it that way, but that's actually what's going on uh, in our head. And then afterwards we say, well, I really didn't know any better, and God was right. Then we confess our sins and move on. Uh, so we walk by faith and not by sight, according to Second Corinthians 5, 7. Sixth, when the Scripture says that we are to walk worthy, the emphasis is not on gaining salvation or gaining grace from God or gaining God's favor, but that because we have it, we are now going to live in light of it. We are going to bring honor to God rather than uh, shame to God. Ephesians 4.1 Paul uses the same terminology. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. See, we've already been called. We've already been saved. Now we should live in a manner that reflects uh, honor and glory to God. Uh, he goes on to say in verse 2, with all lowliness and gentleness, that is humility, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love. Ephesians says a lot about walking. In Ephesians 5, 2, and 3, we read, And walk in love, as Christ also has loved us. That's the standard as exemplified at the cross. As Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling uh, aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Again, that word fitting is similar to worthy. We have a code of conduct that includes doing certain things and not doing other things. Ephesians 5, 8, and 9, Paul says, For one, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. That's positional because they weren't living that way. So he says, walk as children of light. Now that you're in a new family, start living like the new family. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Later in the chapter, he says, See then that you walk circumspectly not as fools, but as wise. Where do we get wisdom? We get it from our study of the Word of God. 
we first have knowledge, and then as we come to understand it more fully under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit, we develop skill and application, and that's wisdom. Walk in wisdom towards the... Notice he's in verse 15, 515. Paul says, walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. A couple of verses later, he's going to say, redeeming the time. And so the parallel verse is in Colossians 4, verse 5. Walk in wisdom towards those who are outside, redeeming the time. Parallel parallel verse. First Thessalonians 4, verse 1. Paul says, finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. There is a standard for how we are to walk. Now, as we look at Colossians 1.10, it says that, we, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful, that is productive. Fruit always has this idea of production or application. Being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now, these two phrases, being fruitful and increasing, are uh, uh, participles that should be understood as a means. How do you walk worthy? By being fruitful in every good work and by increasing in the knowledge of God. We are to be fruitful in every good work. Ephesians 2.10, Paul says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. God saved you so that you would do these good works. Now, this isn't morality. This isn't the kind of uh, superficial good works uh, limiting to, to Christian service or things like that. This is all of the production that God the Holy Spirit brings to our life as a result of our application of God's Word. It includes mental attitude changes. It includes uh, our, our belief system changes. It includes actions as well. It's not just going out and doing it. A lot of people can go out and do good things. If you do it in the energy of the sin nature, it's just human good. It has no eternal value. If you do the same thing, uh, walking by the Spirit, then it has eternal value. You can read your Bible in the flesh just as much as you can read your Bible walking by the Spirit. If you're reading your Bible, uh, you, can, you can pray uh, out of fellowship. You can witness out of fellowship. You can do all these things, and it's just a work of the flesh. But if you're doing it by walking by the Spirit, then it has, uh, has eternal value. So we see that it is God who is the one who produces this in us. It is, uh, the spiritual life is supernaturally dependent. Paul states it in Philippians 1.6, We're confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. God is the one who's going to be consistently working in your life, in my life, so that we grow to maturity. Now, we may rebel against that, but that doesn't mean he's going to stop working. Another passage that emphasizes good works is 2 Timothy 2.21. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, so here's a reference to cleansing of sin, 1 John 1.9, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified uh, and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. So how do you get prepared for every good work? 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, study of the word. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable for teaching or doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, this isn't the good deeds of simple morality that anybody can do. This is walking by the Spirit so that the Spirit produces in us the fruit of the Spirit 
and spiritual growth and spiritual advance. Now, we get to the emphasis on the power that enables us to do this when we get into the next verse, verse 11, which is where we'll begin next week with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word uh, this morning, to be confronted with the fact that as members of your royal family, there is a code of conduct, there's a standard of behavior that is expected of us not to gain your favor, but because we have already been adopted into your family and because you've already given us everything and blessed us with every spiritual blessings in the heavenlies. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Salvation is not dependent upon you or me or what we do or what we don't do. Salvation is dependent upon who Jesus Christ is and what he did at the cross. At the cross, he paid the penalty for our sin, so that sin is no longer the issue. The issue is, are we willing to accept Christ's payment as our substitute or not? Scripture says that salvation is based on faith and not by works. It's simply believing on him, and we will have eternal life. Father, we pray that you would uh, help us to understand the things we studied this morning and that we would realize that this is talking to us, that we too are to walk worthy of our position in your family to bring honor and glory upon you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.